Hey everybody, JD Hansel here. Well, here's something that's a long time coming. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I recorded an interview with Kevin Perjurer, whom you probably know from the Defunctland YouTube channel, if you've spent any time on YouTube. Well, I suppose you could spend your time on YouTube looking at cat videos, but you know, I trust you because you're my listeners, so I know that when you go on YouTube, you go to the intelligent and interesting part of YouTube with the informational but also entertaining videos on the Nickelodeon Hotel and things like that. So you probably know the Defunctland YouTube channel and you probably know about the uh, Jim Henson series that they did, the docu-series that led to this interview. What's neat about this episode is it's a great opportunity to hear Kevin talk about things he doesn't normally get the chance to talk about. Um, and I'm very happy to have provided him with that excuse to discuss Muppets and Star Wars and a whole variety of interesting things. And I think it's a good time, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Muppet Fans Talking. Join us as Jim Henson fans from around the globe come together with commentary on the news and productions of the Jim Henson Company, Sesame Workshop, Muppets Studio, and beyond. Now, here's your host, or at least he's one of them, J.G. Hensel. Joining me now is someone I've wanted to talk to for a very long time. He's the creator of the Defunct Land YouTube channel, known for its informational videos on extinct theme park attractions, and it now covers extinct TV shows as well. The latest big production from this channel has been an excellent six-part documentary series on the life and works of Jim Henson. You should all go watch it right now. Here he is now, the man adored by theme park fans and Brad Pitt fans alike, the fantastic, the fabulous, the faceless Kevin Perjurer. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So I, I've thought a lot about where to start with this conversation because, I mean, you've produced hours of content here covering pretty much the whole life and works of Jim Henson, and there's there's so much to cover. So when trying to think of where to begin, I think I, I just have to start with what's your relationship as a fan to Jim Henson and the Muppet characters? When did you first take an interest in them, and at what point did you really start, you know, researching Jim Henson and, and this stuff seriously? Um, I, I've always been a fan of uh, Jim Henson for as long as I can remember, um, and the Muppets specifically. Um, I don't know. I just I've always I've always wa I've grown I grew up with Kermit um, and Miss Piggy and the gang. I, I, I remember watching Sesame Street. Um, you know, just pretty much like everybody else. Uh, I've I've always been a researcher. So I've all I for as long as I've had the capability. Um, I've always kind of tried to figure out, you know, little fun facts or trivia points about uh, the Muppet movie, The Great Muppet Caper, or whatever it might be. Um, and then, uh, you know, eventually I, I grew this platform uh, through the stuff on with defunct theme park rides. And I also did a few defunct TV shows. And so we tried, uh, so I decided to do a series on Jim Henson after reading Brian J. Jones's biography. Um, and because I thought that would lend itself very well to a anthology um, series uh, split by TV shows for the defunct TV series. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how uh, that progressed. I read the docu I read the the biography in August of last year. So 
uh, and after that I decided to start work on the series. So that's how long it's been in production. Uh, it's finally out, all out now, so luckily, so you can see all parts of it. Um, we, I th I'm very, I'm very, very proud of it. I th everybody involved did such a such great work, and I think it was uh, it worked out really well. So, but to answer the original question, I've just always, I've always been interested. I don't, I can't, I'd, I'd like to pinpoint a, a specific point, but I've just always, always liked uh, Jim Henson works, as many people do, and I'm sure many listeners of this podcast do as well. Right. Yeah. Now, is is there anything about really this moment now that that made you say? this is the time to talk about Jim Henson. Right now we need to have some good documentary series out there covering um, all this. No, uh, not, not specifically as there's no uh, writing, there's no topicality to it other than, you know, he, it's just always, always topical. Um, it, it does seem like it sort of is an interesting uh, counterpoint to where you left off with the previous season of Defunct Land, right? Because you said at one point, I think in a podcast that that was sort of the season about failure and sort of the more negative season. And then here with something that's separate from the Defunct Land series, as sort of a palate cleanser, we get something that's that's about the most positive, optimistic person you can think of. So was that like an intentional turning point or did it just happen? It just, it, it, it would, I would like to take credit for it, but I can't, it just happened that way. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, that was a, I mean, each each series I try to give themes and undertones and the stuff that I usually, you know, try to implement, whether it's seen or not, or whether it's successful, or whether it's uh, just pretentious. Um, but, uh, I've, yeah, so I, th those two things are, I, I agree, and I'm, I'm glad whether it was through a podcast or you just you know, picking up on them yourself, um, that, that came through. Um, but th they were not correlated in that way. But I, uh, but it was, it was a nice break. Um, from season two of Defunct Land, for sure. It, but uh, it, I, I, there was no real topicality to it. It was, uh, I think, it was because I read the biography, and then I, you know, I started looking around at other, you know, Henson documentaries, and the, uh, the, the documentaries that I found, I was not the biggest fan of because they were very, but, but it's not the fault of the filmmakers. Um, it was very surface level um, stuff. And you know the, there was some that were made at the time, like the 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 Henson Henson's place, I think is the name of it. Right. Yeah. Um, that that just coincidentally show you something amazing, because um, that was just kind of you know filmed as they were working. Um, and then there was like the world of Jim Henson, which I believe was after his passing, um, yeah. which is also more surface level, but it has some interviews with people that you can't get interviews with anymore, unfortunately. Um, so that, you know, that has value to it as well. And then there's some other, there's like a CNN documentary and there's all these other like hour long specials or, or whatnot. Um, and all of those are great. Um, but they, they are definitely made for the mainstream viewer from the viewer that knows very little outside of, I've seen Sesame Street. I know who Kermit the Frog is, who, who like some people watch the, watching them might even not even know who Jim Henson is. Um, and so as a as a huge Henson and Muppet fan uh, myself, and I talk about them constantly, um, and you know I just I love I love Hen the the Muppet Show. Like I said earlier, I just love it all. I was very you know kind of disappointed in the in the uh, that there was no documentary for a documentary that matched or you know even came close to Brian's book in the in-depth version of that um, because it felt like a lot of people had made documentaries based off of Jim Henson the works. Yeah, you know the, the the book, which is a great book, 
for Henson fans, and the, these documentaries are great documentaries for like non-Henson right. fans, people that they are introducing to the world of Jim Henson, rather than people that are already familiar with it, and then to like actually you know live in it. Um, so it's not like I didn't like any of these documentaries. I just didn't find one for the for the from the audience member that is me, and that's how I usually approach anything I create. It's you know, I, th- I think I have a very specific taste, and I think the people that follow me share in that taste somewhat that, you know, we like things delivered a certain way, we like to go in-depth, we like closure, we like all, all sorts of things, and um, and so I think that's uh, that's why I approached it this way, but it wasn't necessarily a timing thing. I think it was, it was just because I read Brian's book and reached out to him. Right, yeah, and so did he help out directly then with this series? Yes, um, we credited him as an assistant researcher. Um, not just for the book, but because, you know, I, I would constantly pester him with questions and he was always very, very quick and very kind to answer. Um, and, you know, I, I had a call with him to kind of discuss the whole idea and how I was going to tackle it and any advice. And, uh, yeah, he was extremely receptive while he was also writing his Dr. Seuss book. So, I mean, uh, really, really great, uh, great guy. Um, and I'm not the first to say that, but the, uh, but he is a fantastic person and definitely was the right choice to write Henson's biography, um, the in-depth one. And I was uh, very lucky to be in contact with him and uh, get to, you know, pick his brain on some of the the finer details or, you know, his research. Where did you find this? Um, You know, what do you remember what this was and and just stuff like that. So he was very helpful. Yeah, I, it definitely seemed like, going into this, based on previous podcast episodes that you've done about uh, Muppet-related projects like Bear in the Big Blue House or, or um, mm-hmm. Wobulous World of Dr. Seuss and that kind of thing, you could I could get the sense that you already had a lot of Muppet and Henson knowledge at this point. Like, it, when we found out, when you were talking with Craig Shemin, uh, when, when it became clear that you knew about Dog City, but not the animated series, that places you at a very specific rung on the ladder and Craig just brought you one rung higher to Muppet <laughs> yeah. nerd, mu- just Muppet uber fan expert, dangerously obsessed person. Uh, so, so you're in the club now. You are now in the club of people who get upset that nobody knows about a Christmas toy. And yeah, welcome I was on to the Twitter. Club. I was on Twitter talking about a Christmas toy today. Yeah, isn't that the darndest thing? I've always been upset with people for not being. Uh, just not showing any emotion about this. It's interesting, you know. Like, it's not the, uh, the Toy Story is a ripoff or anything. It's a, it's a good movie. It's just this. It's interesting. It's just very uh, interestingly similar. Yes. Um, it's not not a ripoff necessarily, but it no. is funny how uh, how similar it is with that one key difference. But it's a very it's a uh, I I refer to it in my in my head in conversation as the goals special. Because uh, it seems like everybody got their own Christmas special. Um, so, like, you know, Nelson had Emmett Otter and Goals had Christmas toy. And I'm blanking on, I'm sure Hunt had one. And I know, you know, Jim had all of them. Uh, but I just, <laughs> you know, they, they had everybody. I'm sure there's one Christmas special that was very Miss Piggy heavy. Well, And I guess Nelson's, it's funny because in all the, this is extremely niche. I don't know if anybody even cares about my an- analysis on this. Um, Go but, for uh, it. But the uh, but I find it funny that whenever it came Christmas time, especially with John Denver, it was like time to break out Robin. Robin's part of the main gang, yeah. um, because he's because he can he's the only one that can sound like Emmett Otter, which isn't that weird. Um, and also Nelson doesn't have a main character, so we, he has to do something <laughs> right. Um, well, and Robin's but, uh, the one that can sit on John Denver's shoulder, and that just right. looks good. 
Exactly. So that's enough. <laughs> yeah. So judging by the trailer that you released for this series, it looks like you always had an idea for where you were going with the story, at least to some extent, or how you were going to frame it. Like you had bits and pieces from your final episode in the trailer regarding the theme of time and the framing device of, of timepiece. And I've always wanted to see someone do a documentary about Jim's life that framed it with the timepiece film specifically because it's just so essential to Jim's personality and nobody knows about it. So I guess this is really two questions. First is how did you decide to use the timepiece uh, thing as the really the central framing device to hold it together? And then to what extent did you have the later episodes of the series planned out when you were making the early episodes? Um, we had, we wrote the entire, like I said, this pre-production process was probably seven, eight, nine months. Right. So we, we wrote the whole series before we started episode one production. Um, the drafts changed and the, the main, the bulk of it started to, uh, change a little bit more, but we always had the, the entire idea, um, of what was going to happen. One thing that did change that was pretty significant um, was the second episode was not supposed to be The Curse of Sesame Street. That one was supposed to be The Muppet Show, I think. Hmm. It, it was originally, uh, we had six episodes, and I think it went Sam and Friends was always number one. Right. Uh, the, oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on what the second one was supposed to be. The Muppet Show maybe was supposed to be number two. Um, I mean, I'm trying to rack my brain here because the Jimmy uh, Dean three, show Fraggle Rock. isn't a Muppet show, but no, we big. were never going to go through the '60s um, because and we like montage through the '60s in the first episode because right. I mean, I, even in the Brian's book, he gets through the '60s pretty quickly, but it's a lot of that, you know, Jim Jim doing you know experimental films, which are great, but I'm not going to talk about Timepiece for 30 minutes because um, right. it was a seven minute film or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I can't can't really stretch that out too far. And I'm not going to talk about The Cube because I'm I can't I'm scared of that. Uh, I actually saw someone. It's a uh, someone put out like the scariest film ever is The Cube. On, I saw that on like Twitter the other day, and I was what? like, okay, it's it's not that scary. No. Like, like jump scary. It's just it's just it's it's scary because it's just weird and. Uh, like foreign I guess like as a as a concept um, it makes you very uncomfortable it's, yes it, it's, so does timepiece though um, in parts but uh, yeah so I'm trying to I'm really trying to think because it was six TV shows I'm losing my mind it's the <laughs> right, let's, let's okay, go through uh, every Muppet production uh, in existence yeah, right now bring open the Muppet gonna, wiki here we go so we oh, got gonna... Sam and Friends, The Muppet Show. There's Fraggle Rock. There's Muppet Babies. Were you gonna give? Were you gonna try to do the storyteller separately from the Jim Henson Hour? Because that would be weird. That that might that might have been it. Um, Nobody cares about ghosts of. Baffer oh, it was that. It was that. Okay, so I found that line because <laughs> I was like, we did write all this somewhere. Um, it was Sam and Friends, um, The Muppet Show, Fraggle Rock, Muppet Babies, the storyteller, and the Jim Henson Hour, and then the Muppet TV specials and Disney. So it was gonna do like the final Muppet TV specials, but the timeline was all messed up because I wanted to talk about a Muppet family Christmas in that episode, in the last episode, but, um, but we decided to mess the timeline up even more. And then we ended up going Sam and friends, the curse of Sesame street, the Muppet, which the curse of Sesame street. I really wanted to call, um, the failed Muppet show pilots, but I just, I, because I, I don't know. I just, we, we, I, I put it up on the screen to a bunch of people that I trust and I was like, which one should we go with? So we decided to go with that. Um, 
The curse of because Sesame Street definitely grabs people. Like, yeah, you, because you it's the most. Uh, yeah, I'm glad I made that choice because it's the most uh, popular video. Yeah, I forgot to mention in my intro that uh, when I was watching the Muppet Babies uh, episode when it had just come out, it was like number 25 on trending on YouTube. Or, or yeah, I think it was 25 yeah, it was. on trending. So yeah, some of these that really, you know, that that really strike people for the nostalgia value. They're definitely doing well. They're definitely grabbing people. Um, and, and hopefully the other ones are, are getting lots of viewership, too. The Salmon Friends one definitely deserves it. You know, pe people people should know. If they like Muppets, people should know, you know? Yeah, I was actually really tempted to reach back out to uh, Craig Shemin, um after, uh, like, during that production. But I felt bad because I just, like, asked for a bunch of his time doing the, uh, doing the podcast. But I was like... You're at the you're at the Jim Henson legacy, right? Can you uh can you send me some unauthorized Salmon Friends files? Um, <laughs> but uh but I decided that probably wouldn't go anywhere. Um, but yeah, the uh so that was the original, and then we changed it because the Muppet Show episode is just so long, and I could not imagine doing that second because um, that would have meant we would have skipped over a lot of his life. So, uh, so that's yeah, true. The, that's um, true. Like um, the 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 Muppet Show is definitely the thing that Jim was building up to for a long time and working up towards. It's, I don't know, I don't want to call it his Disneyland, but it seems like it was the kind of thing that it was in the back of his mind way in advance, and you kind right. of have to follow a lot of other things to get there. Um, but you did have a few things here that I, it, it's clear that you really wanted to cover them and give them their due time, but it was really hard to fit them into the format of the show because, you know, the, the Dark Crystal isn't a TV show, the Muppet movie isn't a TV show, and of course Sesame Street isn't defunct. So, was the format of defunct TV at any point a problem for you? Did you feel constrained by it, or were you just working with it? I just, I mean, we did the Curse of Sesame Street, so it worked out. Um, <laughs> I, you know, that wasn't that wasn't more an issue um, as much as the Dark Crystal and the and Labyrinth. Right, could not have been their own episodes, and they wouldn't have been their own episodes even if they were. Um, I don't know because, well, I mean, that doesn't make any sense, but you know what I mean. The uh, <laughs> If so, I would never have done them. Not only because of the format of defunct TV, but also just because it's it, it was a big monumental thing that Jim was really focused on. But the the series isn't about what Jim cared about at any given time. It was it's about the things that he like the the seeds he planted and the things the people he around him that he nurtured and the 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 impact he had. And admittedly, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth probably only have 10 minutes of impact each as far as the culture goes um that 10 minute i mean like as far as the episodes i probably gave i think in fraggle rock i think i gave dark crystal probably 30 percent screen time um which i th which i would go out on a limb having not researched this at all would be how the uh population of the world sees that as well because dark crystal and labyrinth are very beloved by a very small group of people. Yes. Um, while Fraggle, Fraggle Rock is fondly remembered by a wider group of people. It's true. And and you get into very, very risky territory when you start talking about the Dark Crystal. I've, I've upset a few people by pointing out the obvious fact that the Dark Crystal is boring, which I guess I'm not supposed to say, even though we all kind of know that it's painfully, painfully boring. Um, you yeah. know, you, you, uh, w one of the things that, that really makes this series stand out, I think, 
uh, is its use of archival footage and photos to an extent that I haven't really seen in previous documentaries on Jim Henson, particularly regarding his early years. You actually managed to find a lot of material that I don't recall seeing before anywhere, and I've seen the University of Maryland's collection of Jim Henson photos firsthand. So, was it more challenging than usual to find the appropriate B-roll for, for this part of the series, or was, was yeah. it... A, 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 yeah, I'll I, leave I was you gonna, with that. Go ahead. I was gonna. Yeah, I was ready to give up after that one. The uh, <laughs> well, I knew that's how any actual any chronological story um, told through documentary, and I would say across the board, I'm sure the people that have budget for animations um, don't feel this as much. But especially for the beginning of any story, if you watch any of my stories, the beginning is always the hardest, and the end is always easiest because you know when some concept is in its early stages no one's documenting it and then once in its later stages when it's actually a popular concept whether it be anything in pop culture anything that exists in the universe uh, bands i mean i guess that that's still pop culture i mean buildings you know and when it start when it first starts there's very little and then when it's getting when it goes on you know you kind of get uh gets more stuff uh but this was interesting because this is the first time i told a chronological story um over six episodes so you know the first episode i was like oh my gosh because that was every <laughs> single line that got easier to find images in that beginning it was really hard i mean i was going into the prelinger archives at uh on archive.org which is where they just have a bunch of public domain footage and i was like tv and or or uh, and i'd find a video of some old tv installation commercial for when jim got his first tv because no one took a picture of jim with his tv um the day he got it uh because they didn't know he was going to be famous right um which is ridiculous but uh <laughs> his grandmother did i'm sure but yeah, so that was the, it was just every single image got a little easier. And then eventually by the end, I had stuff to pick for him, pick for him, pick from. Cause I was like, I got all this stuff. You want to redo like, that line over again so I can edit yeah. it seamlessly? No, you got it. You can leave it. Um, so yeah, yeah, you can leave all that. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm tripping over my own tongue. I I'm just going to um, be playing all of Michael Eisner's outtakes from, uh, from the Disney World special underneath this. Right. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I actually like when I have so little footage. One of my favorite episodes to edit was my terrifying Splash Mountain episode um, with the, uh, the like the Br'er Rabbit and the Tales yeah. of the Okie Finoki. Yeah. Because there was no imagery. So it was... And I knew there was no imagery, and I, I knew that no matter how much I searched, I was never going to find it. And so that was when I got to get creative and slow the video down. And so it's just much more relaxed because that's... That's my way, I, when I'm presenting this, because I, as much as I try to format it in a documentary format, I understand that this still is the, is, so people are still going to watch it as if it's a YouTube video essay. Right. Which is nothing wrong with video essays. In fact, sometimes they're more, uh, more impressive than what I do. Um, but as far as, you know, people going to see, they're like, oh, I want to see this, like, you know, this very uh, buzzy thing, you know, very like clickbaity, like, oh, I've never seen this before. Let's let's find out about it real fast. And then once I get the information to where I feel satisfied, I'll move on. Um, so I know that that's how it is. And that when I when people are coming towards the material, um, 
and I, there's so little, I just feel so much better because I'm like, well, if you're coming here to figure out what this is, here's the all four pictures. And then I feel like, <laughs> and, and so I can linger on them because it's not like people are going to be like, wow, you lingered on that too long because they'll be like, well, that's the only video you have. But with Jim Henson, it's like, you know, uh, when it was like uh, Fraggle Rock, there is, I can't just, you know, show the same episode of Fraggle Rock over and over again. Um, or I can't, because people would be like, you know, you had all these episodes. Why didn't you just use a different one um and as a fun game that i played with myself and this is completely unrelated to your question um but the uh as a fun game i played with myself on the history of the muppet show episode um i i each episode of the muppet show all 120 are somewhere in that episode of the defunct tv series what so that, i was really? very, i was very proud yeah all 120 i mean it's a 40 minute video so you, you would you would think so but it was every single one it got hard with seasons four and five i think one time i put a grid up to get four episodes in like three seconds <laughs> um but yeah every single muppet show all 120 episodes are represented somewhere in there thank that's, you that, i did that's... not do that with fraggle rock because <laughs> all of fraggle rock looks exactly the same <laughs> that's true yes that's so you can only afford to uh, to render one background the footage that you do use is is great i had to say i was very impressed that you actually managed to find a good photograph of dennis lee in which he's not making a strange face because i i tried to find one for a video i never could you've got great footage from muppets take manhattan behind the scenes footage that i haven't seen anywhere um and then in the first few minutes of the Sesame video, there are these creepy children playing in a black and white space. And I don't know what that is, but I, I guess I just want to ask any tips or tricks for people such as myself making historical videos, looking for footage. Where do you even find it? I got real lucky because I, I, a very nice person reached out to me. Um and his username is A Bagel, and he had a, a private collection of a lot of the footage, the footage you you see. Um, some of the photos are just, you know, I don't know. You just dig. A lot of the photos you probably never seen before are in the newspaper archives, um, and are not in Google Images. You can search Google Images, 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 until forever, and. You know, they're, they're in a newspaper somewhere. Like, it was a local newspaper back in Maryland that took a picture of Jim, like, really smudgy, and just uploaded and just printed it, you know, in the early 60s. And then, you know, years later, I went back and searched, you know, Maryland, 1960 to 1965, Jim Henson. Um, and then it would, you know, it crawled every newspaper for under those parameters and would pull up any. So, like, that's – I find a lot of my images that way. Um, but also I had, I was very lucky to have a private collector reach out to me and offer me some of his, uh, captures. So that was nice. You know, you also got offered some other great videos to use for this series. You had the benefit of knowing some great puppeteers, uh, who were able to make these wonderful sketches in the style of the old Jim Henson commercials as openers for your videos. Were those always intended to be a recurring part of the series? Uh, yeah, that was planned from the beginning. All those episodes were shot um i think a, f a week or two before the first series dropped and that was always going to that was always the intention um i think from the very start of the series i was going to we're going to get the whole series sponsored and we're going to have each episode start with uh these these characters and so uh nate beagle who's my audio editor very good friend um kelsey brady and calvin lester were the three puppeteers they do bird call 
um, and a bunch of other stuff that I'm not sure what I should plug right now. Um, but they, uh, they're they fantastic puppeteers. Um, Nate led them, and we Nate and I wrote eight ske- six sketches. Nate did eight, and Nate wrote two of them on his own. Um, they were all written to be Squarespace, but Squarespace dropped out after four. They had signed on for four, and then they did not renew. Um, and so then NordVPN came on, and so we had to dub one of the commercials um, to say NordVPN. And the final commercial was another Squarespace ad that we had shot that we just dubbed something completely different, where it was they were talking about how it was the last episode, so there was no more ads. Um, you know, yeah. Jim Henson would not have dubbed those. He would have reshot every last one. And I, I just want you to know that. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. There was like four different Wilkins and Wonkins. I mean, they were all the same thing, but they were at the end. They would say like, uh, "It's like, have you you seen all the different Wilkins and Wonkins variations?" Yes, of course. Um, the, he used those characters to promote anything and everything. It seems. Um, and well, he love- reshot the whole commercial for every single one. Did he? Yes, he did. Okay. He was that much of a perfectionist. And it was crazy. Sure. Yeah, he was a perfectionist, but he was also a a, a very smart entrepreneur. I would. Uh, I'm gonna do the second one, but also I never claimed to be Jim Henson, so <laughs> or even close. Now, I'd like to address the complaints you've received about the inaccuracies in the Jim Henson series, because there are a lot of internet trolls out there who were very, very disappointed in you, and you should be ashamed. For for example, you called the movie Labyrinth, the Labyrinth. Shameful. There are poor, innocent boys watching your show. How many times? I think I only did that once, if I I did it at all. I think it was twice. I think it was twice. And there there are these poor, innocent boys watching your show who can't even afford two brain cells to rub together. And all they ask is that their free content that they don't even pay for be without a single error. Was that too much to ask, Kevin? Would you apologize to these poor, unfortunate trolls? I apologize. I didn't... I know there's a lot of errors. Um... But I didn't know I said the labyrinth. I guess I did once or twice. Some people thought I said Bilbo instead of Gobo a bunch, <laughs> which I didn't. And so yeah, I no. Um, and then I had uh, I know I got some of the original sex and violence uh, actors m- messed up, um, which I don't even know how that happened because I I should know that. Um, but yeah, the uh, yeah no, there was a lot. There are people that. They get very upset, um, and it's because uh, I know this was a joke, but I'm going to give you a serious answer. Um, but the uh, the they get upset because um, it's the thing they love, and so you have I have empathy for that, and someone else is telling them about the thing they love. But here's my counter: don't watch the video if you think you know everything already. <laughs> You're just going to be disappointed. Um, it's so, true. And and when and when someone that is already defensive gets disappointed, they write some heinous and mean things. Luckily, uh, it didn't happen too often with this series. People people liked it, I think. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, have you have you gotten any feedback on the series from like the people or companies who who either worked with Jim or or now are involved in the Muppet characters? Anything from up on high from the official level, or has it just been fans? What responses have you gotten? Uh, none, none really officially. I think the the most official I've gotten is uh, outside of the puppeteers that I'm, I'm, you know, friends, not, you know, friends right. as in, you know, acquaintances that uh, that I can yeah. reach out to, like Noel. Now Noel and I have talked a bunch. Um, he's great. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, and then 
There was yeah, a copyright but, uh, strike. Does oh, that there, count? Yeah, that Does was, that, count that, was that was actually Johnny Carson. That wasn't Henson. Really? Uh, yeah. The uh, and then there was uh, Matt Danner who plays Kermit and Rolf on Muppet Babies. Right. Also, so he great. he retweeted it. Um, so I was very happy about that. He retweeted some some one of the promotional tweets, I believe. So yeah, but uh, no, nothing uh, nothing from on high. I I assume they're very busy uh, reworking the Muppet Man script they bought ten years ago um, <laughs> to see what they can do with that. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, I'm just I, I'm just I, I'd rather hear nothing than you need to take this down. So right. I, yeah. and I and I don't think I don't think the Jim Henson Company plays plays ball that way. Anyways, um, Not they usually. seem they, they seem like pretty pretty nice people. Um, yeah, you know, keeping in tradition with. The, the company's whole thing of being like kind and optimistic and all that and also uh, my main defense would be uh, Jim Henson was didn't care at all about copyright I mean I claim fair this use is true. I, 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 uh, I claim fair use with everything I did in the videos I believe that I was transformative and that it was it was part of a bigger picture and I didn't just directly rip and put an episode of the Muppet Show on YouTube um, but also Jim Henson did that <laughs> he would he would play a full song and lip sync to it or he'd have his I mean even up to the Muppet Show they can't release the Muppet Show on DVD not because they're just too lazy but because they can't get the rights cleared right <laughs> because he didn't ask anybody which is Wait, which is, is that, which is, is that, amazing is that still true for the Muppet Show I assumed by that point he had to do we- I highly uh no I heard there were a lot of issues getting licensing because it wasn't just you know maybe he got the licenses for broadcast television and syndication but he did not get the licenses for a dvd release as this is as far as i know and i and i remember uh reading this and then you know season four was announced at d23 a few years back well that was that was that was a million years ago when i was just a wee little lad yeah the the whole idea is i mean i highly doubt that he went and got all those rights for dvd releases and maybe he just wasn't thinking that far ahead because well, no, you know, I, I, DVD, I didn't think because vhs would... wasn't a thing back then um but i mean i didn't think he would think about home video release it's just that i i would assume that to broadcast it on television in the 70s by that point he would have to have gotten the rights cleared but i don't know i mean he was pretty well, much I the mean, most likable guy in the world so i feel sure, like sure i mean he could have gotten I, I don't, whatever i don't know i just remember uh uh, so may- maybe it's the ca- maybe that's just what maybe I'm completely wrong, and that's just the case across the board in the industry. That you just they no one before the '80s when v- when VHS started to become a thing even thought about home releases. But um, I would also say that there is a possibility that some of the covers of songs he did might not have been completely cleared, considering he was in London making a show that was then syndicated. I mean, there's a lot of steps there. It's not like he was doing a direct feed onto NBC every night. Um, you know, yeah, who, right. who, how, how would you even begin to chase that down? Would you go over this? Anyways, this is all complete speculation. I don't do not take me as an authority on this matter. I just know that it's really hard to get them up at shows on DVD because the rights weren't cleared, but maybe that's the case for everything. Maybe that's just like a really like before, but none of the contracts mentioned anything about personal, uh, video releases because everyone was like people watching this in their homes what are they going to do buy a film projector right and then vhs came out so that's an interesting history somebody should do a history on that there you go let's turn the conversation in a completely different direction 
Uh, what do you think about the Muppets' presence in theme parks or lack thereof, and what do we do about it? How do we get the Muppets in the parks? Like, what's the best um, place for them in the theme parks now? I... I don't know. The, the, uh, that's just a question in general about the whole state of the Muppets today, um, which is not... They're not at their 100%. But the problem with the Muppets is that when they are popular, they're less funny. They're supposed to be this unpopular ragtag group of characters barely making a show every night. Um, that's at least what they were originally designed for. And right. then when they became popular, they were kind of riding off of the Miss Piggy Diva thing and then, you know, the whole the relationship thing. But in my opinion, they've always worked better when they're less popular because um, that's part of their shtick is that at, they're just... At least in universe, less popular, right? Like when The Muppet Show was the most popular show in the world and they're getting all these great guest stars on the show, somehow in the world of The Muppet Show, they're still all losers, barely making a dime. It doesn't make any sense, but it makes them right, a lot funnier. right. Um, yeah, the, it's a uh, that that kind of juxtaposition's funny, um, and then even in the Muppets 2011, when they were like told like you are not gonna be on TV, that's I just that's all that's how I've always pictured them. But there was a significant period of time between 1970s and 1980s where the Muppets early 1980s where they were the celebrities of the day because they had the most popular show in the world. Yeah, and. It, I mean, it's not like they were unfunny or it's not like they weren't being themselves, but I've always liked them as this kind of niche thing. So part of me likes the fact that the uh, that they're not um, that they're not just being slapped on every label everywhere anymore. Um, but then another part of me would rather them do something than, you know, a YouTube video every few weeks. Um, but uh, in the theme park specifically, uh, I don't know. I think, of course, there's been a thousand Muppet ideas to do in the theme parks. None of them have been fleshed out because none of them probably ever will be. Um, I think the Great Moments in Muppet history is one of the funniest things they've done in a long... Great Moments in American history um, is one of the funniest things. Is it just Great Moments in history, but just the American parts? That's what it is. I can never um, remember the exact name it's, of that it's like, particular show. I, it might be called Great Moments in Muppet History. The song is Great Moments in History, but just the American parts. Um, it's it's what to do when you're in that area and you don't want to have to go into the Hall of Presidents for obvious reasons. That's what it is. Yeah, but I think it's really funny. I think, I, I don't know, there's always going to be something for me about actually seeing the characters. Even True. though, you know, it's it's just an audio track. Um, but just seeing the characters is just like that's Kermit. He's like there in front of me, and it's not a video. Yeah. Um, but I yeah, think that's, that's pretty a, magical. Uh, it's one of the coolest things they've done recently. Um, so I, I like that that's an addition to the theme parks with them. That's that's crazy that that's happening today. I think they ha they were going there for a while. They were like, okay, we're gonna do this and this, and now we're gonna do a TV show. And for whatever reason, and the TV show didn't pan out. And the uh, or maybe for many reasons, or I don't know. Um, and then it's like, oh, well, that's it. And any momentum they had was like gone. And I'm like, dang. Yeah. Um, so I hope they can come back. They have to come back in media before I can even think about them coming back in the parks. Because now the parks yeah. are just an extension of what's popular of the day. So, this but I don't the. Uh, but I also think maybe just give them a YouTube staff like they were doing a few years ago. That was great. They were doing little Muppet Show sketches on YouTube. I want one of those once a week, or maybe twice a week. I just there's there's so many things. There's so, and there's still so many talented, talented, talented people there. 
Yeah. It's like they could easily, easily be doing something all the time. I mean, they, um, they were trying to make weekly Muppet YouTube videos for a long time there, and all we got was the Muppet Thought of the Week, which usually was very short, and the joke was not particularly funny, and you're like, okay... What are you guys doing here, guys? Come on. And now they haven't uploaded for nine months. Yeah, it has been. It's. I, I really think that the TV show actually kind of threw a wrench in everything because it's It's weird that I haven't talked about this on the show before, but it does seem like the, the Disney company was finally starting to get that the Muppets were for more than just kids. Like, even when you look at the 2011 movie and Muppets Most Wanted, they feel, you know, with songs like Life's a Happy Song and all of its la-la-la-la-las, it feels like it's very much child-oriented. Uh, nodding to the parents who are presumably taking the children. But then finally with the TV show, they're like, all right, we, we hear you Muppet performers and Muppet writers and Muppet fans saying that these are for more than just kids and these can do comedy aimed at adults and everyone and, you know, the whole family, all ages and all that. Let's try it. Let's try a primetime Muppet show for adults and see what happens. And what happened? It tanked. And so this this theory that the Muppets are for everyone... Um, in, a, in a way, almost seemed, probably to, to Disney at least, it must have seemed like that theory was disproved, which it wasn't, it, since clearly that format right, just I mean, wasn't working, the writers were, weren't working, there's a lot they that were wasn't working. They were never in a, yeah, they were never inappropriate, though, um, Not really. in the way they were in The Muppets. I mean, and everybody, and so, I have very strong opinions on, on this very specific section of Muppetry, um, in that... The, you know, people are like, well, Jim Henson did this. And I was like, yeah, but that's not the Muppets, you know, and because right. and Jim was all about preserving the Muppets and he rarely tried to take Kermit and Fozzie, if ever, I don't even, I can't even think of an example and make them the adults. You know, he was always doing his adult stuff on the side or, or whatnot. And, and I think people, uh. People, people thought people had. There's this weird narrative that people dig up every few years, where it's like, oh well, man, you know, Jim Henson used to make stuff just like the the Happy Time Murders. And I was like, no, he never did that. I mean, not that. No. Right, like he never, like you would never see that. I mean, you know, Henson Alternative is you know great for a specific audience, but that was never Kermit. He never. And that's like that's where I felt the Muppets, the the TV show, and I did not watch the whole thing, and I know it got better actually later on. Um, but it was it was just feeling like okay, you're you're thinking like oh we want to see like Fozzie dating a human, and it's it's like all this very uh, very adult but almost inappropriate like almost bridging on Ted ish humor or that you know that kind mm. of thing, and it's it's just and then people were like well, man Henson back in the day would do like crazy stuff. I was like yeah, but he was also like not doing what you think he was doing. I don't know. I just have, there's always that thing that keeps getting brought up of like, Jim Henson made this crazy psychological horror film called The Cube. Did you know that? I'm like, yes, I did, but it wasn't The Muppet Show, okay? And they'll always be like, before Kermit, was this Kermit? And I was like, nope, that's Wilkins and Wonkins. And they're not talking <laughs> about sex. They're talking about, they hit each other in a hammer and promote coffee. It's not that dirty. <laughs> like, don't, <laughs> they just keep digging the stuff up. But like, it's like, you know, whatever news say, like, uh, Buzz tube every every like six months will just be like, did you know Jim Henson used to? I'm like, yes, but it's not what you think. It's not the way you're framing it. Is not what it was. And it felt like the Muppets just missed the mark on 
what they thought the inappropriate humor was. But the adult stuff of The Muppet Show, the reason The Muppet Show appealed to adults was because it was subtle and smart. It was a lot of British comedy. Um, but it was also just the way it was formatted and the, the progression of the jokes. It was it was teetering between really smart and really, really dumb. But it was all done with that, you know, done in mind. It was all done with that in the back of their head that they knew what they were doing. And so, like, the 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 pinnacle of The Muppet Show actually happened really early in its run. And I, I actually mentioned this because it's one of my favorite lines from Kermit, which is the, the crown weighs rather heavy on this little froggy head. Um, and just he just turns to the camera and says that. Um, and stuff like that. It's just like, yes, that is a, that's kids aren't going to understand what that means. Um, but it's like, oh, it's, you know, if that makes sense, it's that those little nods, those little fun, you know, moments, just the quick comedy, the, the running gags, it's, it's not, it's not inappropriate, but it's for adults and kids and everyone. I mean, I don't have to explain this. Everybody that's listening to this podcast knows this, um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's my rant on that. And now I just want to see a remake of The Cube starring Kermit the Frog. Hi, Holder, right. I'm having an existential crisis. Uh, yeah. That or would be time wonderful. Piece. <laughs> Kermit the Frog goes I, I to know. strip club. <laughs> oh, man. I, I will say, though, with, with all that's happened to the Muppets and with their status, I think in a way Disney's doing the best possible thing for them right now just by having Muppet Babies getting some form of the Muppets in children's faces so that once right. again there will be, you know, children growing up with these characters. Like, you know, D Disney can make lots of money off of any property that somebody grew up with. And for a while there, for whatever reason, there were a lot of people about my age, a little older, a little younger, who just didn't grow up with the Muppets at all. And... Even though I'm sure Disney's real motivation with Muppet Babies was, hey, the original series was a merchandising juggernaut. Let's have a merchandising juggernaut and sell as many toys as possible. Uh, I, I, it does seem like the effect, hopefully, will be 20 years from now. People will care about Muppets again, maybe. It's possible. It's, it's an investment in the long term, I think. And then the animated Muppet Babies will get a live-action reboot, which will actually just be, you know, the Muppet Puppets, which is all that we could ever want. <laughs> yeah, whoever's in charge of Disney television animation right now is killing it across the board because they have, you know, they have all those you know, just incredible shows. Um, and they've been doing it for a while, but, I mean, you have Muppet Babies, DuckTales, mm -hmm. the Mickey Mouse shorts, um, right. My Milo Murphy's Law, um, just uh, which was, you know, Phineas and Ferb before that. And then, you know, uh, all, just there's tons of amazing family-oriented adult stuff. And I think, now now to tie this back to my rant for no reason, but, you know, Phineas and Ferb, I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Great show. It's an incredible show, and adults love it. But it's never because Phineas and Ferb go to a strip club. I mean, aside from that one episode in Besides, which, where they built They built the strip club, yeah. Uh, it's the second oldest profession. To tie that into my rant, uh, Phineas and Ferb is, is a good example of of Muppet-like humor, which it's for adults because it's smart and it's for kids because it's colorful and fun, um, but it's not inappropriate for kids. It's just a, it's such an obvious thing. I can't believe it's even even an issue to figure out like how to do this, right. um, especially when you have so many incredible, you know, like writers that are still around that could easily. I mean, whatever. Um, but yeah, no, the Disney television animation, 
is doing incredible things and the Muppet Babies is just is amazing so who knows there's going to be kids that are going to be growing up you know 10, 15, 20 years from now that are like man I love Kermit and they're going to be like did you know there's an adult Kermit that's going to be the, that's going to be the that's going to be the BuzzFeed's articles <laughs> from 30 years from now it's going to be before baby you, Kermit did you know that there's an adult version of Kermit the Frog because <laughs> and everyone's going to be like I had no idea that's the thing that everybody's going to say it's like for me it's when people are like did you know there's a there's a basketball court in the Matterhorn I'm like yes um, <laughs> thank you uh, that's what, that's how it's going to be. It's going to be like, did you know that Miss Piggy has an adult version and she's a puppet? I, I mean, of course, this is a super huge exaggeration and, and a dystopian future that I don't think we'll ever get to. Um, but I think there might be a possibility. They need to start doing bookends. They need to start having a start and end with uh, Kermit the Frog coming in as an adult and telling a story about when he was a baby. But yeah. even though, because, because it doesn't make sense because the Muppet Babies exists in a parallel universe that doesn't exist because the Muppets didn't canonically didn't know each other as babies, which is my favorite you know, thing about Muppet babies in general is it's all just, it's even in universe. It's made up. It's a right. dream. It's a, well, because except, in, in Mupp- except in Muppet family Christmas where they just have this old footage of them together as babies. Right, I guess that's true, which doesn't make any sense. Because nope. in, in Muppets Take Manhattan, the line before the dream sequence is literally, don't you wish we would have known each other as babies? Well, yes, and but see, that the fact that the Muppet babies are not canon, established in uh, 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 Muppets Take Manhattan, is within a work that is itself not canon, because the Muppets didn't know each other as college students, right? I mean... I mean, it's just, right. it's, it's, look, my, my friend, uh, Jared Fairclough at the Muppet Mindset has written extensively on the fact that there is no Muppet canon. And the obvious response to that is, well, what about Crazy Harry's canon? But it's true. And it's something that, <laughs> that I just, <laughs> I just can't, oh, thank you. It's, I don't know. I don't know what to say other than it's very, very frustrating when you want to say that there is some sort of Muppet cinematic universe going on where, you know, the the Muppet timeline, the Sesame Street timeline, and the Fraggle Rock timeline all interact in certain ways and ways that make sense. You want it to be coherent. I don't know why we need that. It doesn't matter. But we just want it to be coherent, and we try to find a way to make it coherent. Um, so the frat with the Muppet Family Christmas... If you wipe that from the canon and consider Muppet Babies a dream sequence, and then, you know, you take the Muppet movie and that's not how they originally met, because I say that at the beginning, it's like it's kind of sort of how it happened. Um, so if you erase all that, and the Muppet takes Manha- the Muppet saying Manhattan might have been true canon, because Muppet Family Christmas has a lot of issues, because uh, it is premiered after Fraggle Rock ended, but Doc does not know who the Fraggles are. Correct. And in, in Muppet Family Christmas. Um, Which I just recently put together, and I've been very upset with myself for not noticing sooner that there is that total denial of Fraggle Rock canon that just says those last few episodes never happened. I just assume well, well, that Muppet it, it Family Christmas... It takes before, I guess. It, That's it's what a, my guess. That's my guess. I'd love to see the timeline of the universe. Right. Um, but even yeah. then, there is an issue where there's uh, an episode of Fraggle Rock in which they encounter frogs. Not puppet frogs, real frogs, and learn what those are. And then they learn what frogs are again in Muppet Family Christmas, and so you gotta figure out how to sort out that timeline. So this is messy. We could be on this for a while, so let's not be. 
Um, in the time when your podcast hasn't been in regular production, though, Kevin, there's there's been all this other stuff in the news about theme parks and Disney movies and the like, and I've enjoyed seeing you share your thoughts on this stuff on Twitter, but it's not the same as hearing you in my car on a podcast episode. So can I? do you have time for me to ask you just quickly about a couple of interesting topics? Sure. All right. First of all, Galaxy's Edge, what the heck is going on here? No one understands what's going on. Uh, it's it's a it's a very interesting scenario. Those that say it's a failure are wrong. Those that say that it's not a failure are wrong um, <laughs> because it's not really open yet. Um, I think the biggest thing to take from Galaxy's Edge um, is that we all we can look at is Disneyland. Um, I think the the thing that we can take away from Galaxy's Edge is that they probably should not have cloned the land to Disneyland. I think that might have been a mistake. The mistake, the building the land was not a mistake. Spending all that money necessarily was not a mistake. They're going to make it back. They already have in lightsaber sales. I guarantee it. Um, but cloning the land to Disneyland might have been a mistake. But it's also possibly the greatest thing ever to happen to Disneyland because it just spreads out the crowds. It gets more attractions. I mean, there, there's so many things about it that we just haven't seen. What's going to happen when Rise of the Resistance opens? What's going to happen when pass holders uh, are unblocked? What's going to happen when it opens in Hollywood Studios? There are so many things um, that we just haven't seen. So it's just way too early to, to you know, uh, to give a verdict on. I don't think it's a failure, though. I don't think it's going to be the failure because at any day they could just open up the land. But I think, I think a lot of people, I'm sure Disneyland and also Disneyland management is a lot different than Walt Disney world management because Walt Disney world management is just opening floodgates. That's like everything they do. There's it's everything is flooded. Let's just open channels. Um, but with Disneyland management, they are so, because they have a lot less to worry about. They're so worried about making sure the experience is really, really great on a more personal level. And so yeah. is Walt Disney World at a certain extent, but Disneyland focuses on it more. And I think, you know, Disneyland might be content with having this summer where, you know, they are making money. There's no doubt about that. But it's this, it's this summer where everything's a little slower and it's a little more breathing room. And I think they might like that um, just from a, on a management level. I'm sure their satisfaction surveys are through the roof because of just people that come there to vacation are having a lot better time. And of course, comes at the expense of the annual pass holders. Um, but, you know, screw them. I'm an annual pass holder. Screw me. I don't care. Um, the fact that we get to go to Disney more than once every two years is a privilege, not a right. So, um, and also going to Disney at all is not a right. I'm not saying if you once every two years, it is your right and the government should uh, make sure that happens. Um, <laughs> but uh, but also, yes, that should happen. Um, but yeah, so that's my thoughts on Galaxy's Edge. Way too early to call. So many factors. Interesting for sure. I'm tired of people talking about it, though, because they don't know what they're talking about. Well, well, well now I, I guess I shouldn't have said anything. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll change no, you, the it was a, it was a question. You didn't say anything about it. You said it was interesting. I agreed. But do you think it's a failure? No. Okay, good. I, I, I would have been weird for you to, after I went on this big explanation of why it's not. Um, no, I was just <laughs> I was I was I was about to ramp into well yes it's the worst thing that's ever happened to theme parks because Star Wars is crap now but then I remembered that's idiotic so because and and the, uh, there's a whole section of people that say they should have built Tatooine um, or built some other planet and that's why it's failing um, which is 
hilarious to me because I know the Star Wars fandom. And if they would have tried to build it, it would have never been good enough. <laughs> so uh, someone had the right idea. I, I get a kick out of people saying people don't like it. People aren't coming because uh, the new movies, people don't like the new movies. This is a sign that the new movies are bad. And it's like, when has Star Wars ever not made money just because of something like that? Like this... How is there any yeah. correlation? That's amazing to me. And I, I also don't understand how, even if the movies were amazing, how opening a, a theme park land on the other side of the country is suddenly going to make everybody go to a non-vacation destination. Yeah. That's just, that's yeah, that makes sense. And that's like saying the reason Pandora is such a success in Animal Kingdom is because everybody loves the av- Avatar, <laughs> um, which... A lot of people love Avatar. I think it's a great movie, um, story-wise, eh, but uh, <laughs> but it's a f- great experience. Um, and uh, but it's not. It's, that's not the reason. It's not like someone's like, did, did you hear there's a new Avatar land? We gotta go. It's because hey, I want to go to Walt Disney World because there's a thousand things to do. Anyways, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you know, with with Star Wars, I know there was sort of the the talks about with after the failure of that Han Solo movie. Uh, Iger was like, yeah, we should have spaced out our Star Wars movies a bit more, given them a bit more space between them. We did too many too close together, and that's why Han Solo didn't work out. And now here we are in a time when Disney's just released the Aladdin live-action remake back-to-back with the Lion King live-action remake right next to each other. Like, are they both in theaters right now at the same time? Because it seemed like that's how it worked. I don't know. It was definitely one right after another. And both are terrifyingly successful like terrifyingly successful and just the I, I mean I almost hate to go into it because it's painful to think about that but do you have any thoughts on that that you'd like to share well the reason I think Star Wars I, I don't think Star Wars is the type of brand that has legs in the same way that something like these live action remakes do um because the more specific and the more spin-off, the more different you get with Star Wars, the more you cut out people. Um, and this is literally just a movie that has a proven track record that they're just releasing, you know. Oh, it's Aladdin. Oh, it's Lion King. You know, it's, uh, it's not that big of a risk. Um, but with something, they got, they, they did Marvel really interestingly right because they slow built it into this thing but that's what marvel is and we've seen a thousand other companies try to do the same thing or a thousand other productions try to do the same thing um whether it's the dark universe or uh, dc or whatnot and they just can't do it but star wars wasn't built for that star wars was made for six movies over you know 25 years yeah. That's that's the infrastructure that was built. It was this huge phenomenon, then there was 20 years off, and then there was this huge phenomenon again, and then it was over until maybe another, you know, 20 years in the future. Um and that's but to do it every single year, yeah, you you might that that is a mistake in my opinion because that's just not the infrastructure that that culture and that production is based around. Um versus something that you you say 
we're going to sit down and we're going to build this story over 22 films or however many films we're going to build the infrastructure to create and this is and this is talking about uh, marketing infrastructure it's talking about story structural infrastructure um, it, they approached that like a TV show but Star Wars isn't a TV show until now but the <laughs> now now there is going to be a TV show um, but you know it's going to be it's it's going to be interesting for sure um, and I think there was a lack of clear plan um, in in place for Star Wars, I think they just started going with it because it's Star Wars and it's a surefire bet. Um, but also, if you would have planned it out and made it something like Marvel, it could have easily failed just as well. Um, also, Marvel has the the benefit of the infrastructure of the comics because that's how the comics are built. They're built as these standalone comics, and there's these big crossover events. I mean, that's just that is what. Marvel is, and they right. built. They made that into the movies. Star Wars was never that. Star Wars was the opposite. It was this very small, specific thing that people took into their own lives and made extended universe works and all sorts of different things. And then Disney kind of tried to make their own extended universe with it. Um, and I think they they're starting to realize that that core audience isn't there for that specifically. Um, because that's the kind of stuff that they want to do on their own. I mean, yeah, the, the people that are complaining about about Disney's Star Wars are the same people that ate up those those uh, those uh, extended universe books where Han Solo landed on Earth and met Indiana Jones. I mean, that's 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 what we're working with here. <laughs> um, all these films made like a billion dollars, so the only, Solo was just a weird kind of phenomenon. Um, I don't know. Rogue One did really well too. Uh, so, so we'll again, we'll see. Um, I'm sure they're going to regroup, and they're gonna, they're all smart people. If I can talk about it for th- three minutes, and they focus on it, they're going to be able to figure it out. They're going to be making a billion dollars per picture again, um, very soon. Maybe it was just releasing in July. That was the whole problem. They should just release in December. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I'm so. just I'm I'm more concerned about them getting so much money with Aladdin and Lion King because I really really thought that after Dumbo an end was in sight, that there was, you know, some point when they would have to start backscaling these, but I suspect that Dumbo just didn't have the same nostalgia power behind it as Aladdin and Lion King. I don't know about that one. Um, but I, I, I don't know that we have that much time to talk about it because you, uh, yeah, we got to start wrapping up soon. Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. I mean, I think the Lion King and Aladdin, there's only a few of those in the Dis- in Disney. And they've already gone through three of them. Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, and Aladdin. Um, and Cinderella. So right. I think they have Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. Well, no, not Sleeping Beauty because they did Maleficent. Um, so they're they're running out. And unless they're going to start remaking the post-Renaissance or the Disney revival films, which are Tangled and Frozen and all those films, you know, they're going to be very... They're going to be hard-pressed to, to create these new these new things it's probably going to be a, just another cycle to disney's business as after this we're going to get a 10 years of original stuff and they're going to milk it for 10 years and then we're going to get 10 years of original stuff and then we're all going to die and then disney's still going to live on and they're going to milk that um but uh but yeah no they're lion king and aladdin we knew they would make a bunch of money it's disappointing that they do i went to see it so i'm, I'm the problem so i can't really say much man that was just such a depressing dystopian view of the future let's bring things back now to the very positive jim henson 
your your final episode on Henson was surely your most ambitious, and I know you were kind of nervous about releasing it. I mean, you took the bold approach of putting together the footage of Jim Henson's memorial service with a fictional TV special, sort of implying that the events were taking place concurrently, and then you repeatedly jump back to a year prior to tell the story of Jim Henson's life. Now, this is absolutely brilliant. It's also kind of insane. How in the world did you arrive at this? Well, thank you. Um, I, I think it worked out for a lot of people. I think the majority of people understood what I was going for. Um, so I was... My, my issue with um, a lot of the stories, the, the way that people tell Jim Henson's story, my main issue... And this isn't a, this is the only way it's been told because it's chronological, it's linear. But my problem with it, and this is not a problem with the material of the people creating it, it's a problem with my own personal emotions, is that uh, there's no closure to Jim's passing. It's just every single work, and it's because they have to, um, is they, you know, you go, oh, and then, and then he made the Jim Henson Hour, and then he passed, and then this is his legacy. But there's no symmetry to that there's no poetry because it's life and that's that's depressing um but for someone that made something so made a world of creativity and whimsical and all and just took life and made it a lot more fun i was like well maybe i can take this and make it a little different um and my goal was to not build up to the death at all like the death was almost like an afterthought it was just like a real quick and then he passed away of uh, bacterial pneumonia. And then we get into the main part, which is not his necessarily his legacy, but his... Well, it's, it's a little bit of his legacy, but it's mainly his goal and what he did. And so it wasn't just to show funeral footage, but it was to... The funeral itself, or the memorial, sorry, the memorial, um, was designed to, to, uh, to show different parts of his life. And so was the Jim Henson, the Muppets Celebrate Jim Henson. Um, and they both end with just one person. So it felt natural to have everything, the main storyline, the, the memorial, and the special all culminate into just one person um, at, to be the end of the series. And so that's where I was like, well, uh, in order to fix this lopsided narrative that is real life, I need to uh, create this kind of th parallel three stories that all converge and then it feels a lot more... There, there feels more closure, at least I hope, in the end than the stories that the, the, or what happened chronologically, which is he passed away and then people remembered him. Um, but it was just so abrupt that it's just not, uh, not, uh, not, not my, not, I think I thought there was a different way to do it. And I think the different way in for the series itself paid off. Um, because I wouldn't have been able to, you know, get a lot of that legacy stuff. Because unless I was going to make a, you know, a 20-minute video on the Jim Henson Hour followed by 15 minutes on his legacy, um, that just isn't, that's lopsided. So I was like, how do I even it out? And so I, the parallel timelines were kind of the idea. You know, I, I think that the other way to do it is as soon as Jim Henson dies, the, the rest is just about Michael Eisner and his ongoing effort to just squeeze the Muppets out of the Henson children if it's the last thing he ever does. That's the only other thing there is to do. And uh, I, I don't know, who wants to watch that, right? Um, right, yeah. Um, You're going to roll right into season two of Defunct Land. <laughs> I loved how, like, when you watch that, that uh, last episode of the most recent season of Defunct Land, it feels like you're putting some bookend there with Michael Eisner. Like, yes, we've talked about Michael Eisner a lot, 
but here's a little bit of closure for Michael Eisner. And then you do the Jim Henson series, and he comes back again. There's no escaping Michael Eisner. Yeah, what well, was the? It was the because it's because uh, there was a linear story told of Michael Eisner through season two, right? Um, and that was the end of that story. But no, he's everywhere. Um, he was like the most powerful man in pop culture for a long time. So it's the and it just so happens to be the the exact time that everyone is very nostalgic for. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, do you have any advice that you would give to people who want to make their own uh, documentaries or video essays or, or anything like the things that you do, telling uh, interesting or little-known stories? Where do people start? Um, well, you have to be inspired to... Uh, and by that, I mean you need to be... You, you need to have had a subject that you're interested in. Well, when you start to go searching, uh, that's when you need to pivot, in my opinion. Um because if you're looking for something to do a video on um, or you're looking to because I, I mean I have so many video ideas just you know lined up people suggest them to me I'm never short of ideas it's mainly like I got to search for a video to pick not to find but if your goal is to you know go on YouTube and make uh, make you know money or make or get views um, I guess there's certainly worse ways to do it but if, if you are a uh, if you really are someone that's like, I have this, I found this crazy thing and I just, no one's talking about it and I just want to talk about it. Um, well then just do it. My first episodes suck. They're terrible. Um, but within that, there's also a bit of charm because I think hopefully my passion for all the subjects I talk about came through and I hope that still, still is the case. Um, so step one is just already be passionate about something. Don't try to force yourself into something you're not completely enthralled in. Um, or even if, if you find a new world, then research it. Make sure you're really interested in it and then enter it. Um, and then if you're making, you know, if you're going to make content, you know, make it interesting, make it different. You know, don't talk down to your audience. Um that's uh that's probably my I, that'd probably be my other main tip is I think when I started Defunctland, um it was kind of like framed as an adventure that we're going on together, um and that like we're we're both learning versus I know everything and I think I guess that also comes in with an I guess my final tip for real is uh I would I would really uh shy away against giving your personal opinions on things before you have built up an audience. I give my opinion a lot um, on Twitter or whatnot, um, mainly as jokes and as fun. Um, and sometimes people really do ask me, what do I think about this? And it's like, oh, that's what, you know, I think about this. Well, that's because I think I think I have a little more, I guess the word is clout, um, yeah. considering that it's just assumed that every day I wake up, research, and then go to bed. So that's probably, I know a little bit more than the average fan because that's what I do all the time. Um, but if you, uh, but I think before I started this, if I were just to come in and be like, here's what I think about extraterrestrial alien encounter, I don't like it or I love it. It's just, who are you? <laughs> Why are you telling me this? How, why are you telling me how to think? Um, but if you, if you do have an opinion, you do have something to say, you know, there's a lot of ways you can go about that. I think with the Jim Henson series, I said a lot of things that I really wanted to, you know, get out there or, or beliefs that I had that I, that I wanted to represent, and um, I don't think I've ever spoken the first person. 
throughout the whole series. And I think that is my way of going about it. So I don't know if this is advice to people wanting to do this, but uh, but if you if you have something to say, you really do say it, um, but in a clever way that's backed up by a lot of research, and you'll still probably get things wrong. So <laughs> be prepared for those comments. Um, but yeah, so that's that's I guess that's my advice. Uh, I mean, the most interesting uh, thing that that you said I thought was in that last episode when you you're saying all these things about Jim Henson and then you point out he was also very lucky, which is something no one ever says about Jim Henson. The narrative yes. is always you know he did all these great things because you know against all odds he just magically had the power to bend his whole life story to his will, which is just so far from the truth, you know. Uh, he had so many times when he did fail just as a matter of circumstance and other times when he had all these resources at his disposal as a matter of circumstance. Right. I mean, we no one would know who Jim Henson, no one would remember Jim Henson if he didn't go to London to shoot an unrelated special with, I think it was, oh my gosh, Julie Andrews, maybe. Right. Because um, that's where Lord Lou, Gray found, Lord Lou Grade found him. He'd failed two Muppet Show pilots. Did he do that because he's an artistic genius or a creative entrepreneur that just knew what to do? And he went to to London to get discovered, and he knew that you know primetime syndication was going to be a thing. No, it just circumstance. He got lucky. You know, it wasn't was it because of his skill? Yes. Was it because of his hard work? Yes. But that and that was one of the main things that I wanted to say is because we're worshiping a man. He's a person. He had flaws, real flaws, that affected other people, um, as as we're all very aware. We can love his work, and we can love this idea of a man, but none of us really know him. And so I think it was important for um, we were hero-worshipping throughout six episodes to end it with, this could be anybody. This is, if you have talent and you have hard work, and he had a lot more than the average person, as we all know. Um, but he also just had a ton of luck. I mean, imagine if he would have been born 10 years later and, you know, he, I mean, he, he lived in a time where you could go to a TV station and they would give you a five minute puppet show before <laughs> the, before that's like today. If you're like, Oh, what do you, where, where, where do you go every day? I'm like, Oh, I shoot this 10 minute, you know, uh, TV show right before Jimmy Fallon every night for the entire tri-state area. Like yeah. that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen anymore. And so, uh, yes, but also he was a genius it's you can be both a genius and super lucky and there's a lot of people that are super lucky and not geniuses and there's a lot of people that are geniuses and not lucky um so i thought that was that was something that i've always like really felt and struggled with because i'm like well maybe you know because i have aspirations too i want to make you know big documentaries i want to make small documentaries i want to do all these things um and i'm lucky i'm super lucky and i and i don't say that enough i try to say it a lot but i don't i can never say it enough is that you know if i would have gotten started you know, a year earlier, a year later, a week earlier, a week later. I got started at the same time as two people that were doing the exact same thing as I was doing. And they, Park Parkride History and Mark from Yesterworld um, were making the same videos. We made, I made Extraterrestrial the, the day after or the week after, maybe. I think it was like two or three days right after Parkride History did. And that was his wow. second video. It's all a crapshoot. But if you're good... Take advantage of the opportunities, work for them. I mean, it's it's just something I've always kind of struggled with. And so that was something I really wanted to say. But if I did a video called, like, Kevin's Thoughts on Success, that <laughs> no, one, no one would care about that. Because um, who are you and why are you telling me this? But if I, you know, if I can get some of my ideas or some of my thoughts framed that way. And, of course, it's not like I'm just going out there and saying, like, Jim Henson liked popsicles and everybody should like popsicles. I mean, this is, you know 
it's not a stretch is the point. Um, uh, so don't try to force your messages into things, I guess is also a little disclaimer. But if you have, if you have a message that fits, um, I thought that one fit really well. Um, cause I, that was like the climax. You build way up to this guy and then you're like, but he was lucky and he was lucky to have people around him. And that was what he believed. And so that's, uh, that, that felt very natural, but also something that I've always really thought. So, uh, yeah, but everybody's everybody's luck is luck and unlucky um it's like that it's like that uh kenny rogers song every hand's a winner and every hand's a loser that's where you want to end this episode i guess i don't really? know on that one? <laughs> hey no, it was I on actually, the, the gambler was performed on the muppet show it's one of my favorite muppet show skits that's true that is a really good muppet show sketch uh you did you know what you i believe we now have our episode subtitle jim henson liked popsicles the best one we've had so far. Yeah. Thank you. Starting to wrap things up now, uh, hopefully more than starting. Uh, I think it's plugging time, which means I, I do want to hear briefly about the uh, documentary film you're producing for director Matthew Serrano, The uh, Space Stage, A Halix Story. What can you tell us about it? Uh, Live from the Space Stage is a um, documentary feature, now officially going to be 90 minutes long or, or thereabouts. Um, thanks to the crowdfunding campaign that's very successful. Um, Matthew's a great director. He's a great guy, um, and he has a great team of people working for him. Um, we have been producing this. I've been producing it creatively and emotionally supportingly, um, and Matthew would probably tell you the same thing, um, of making, you know, helping out with, here's how you do things, here's how you, you know, here, like giving tips and tricks. It's a, and so, uh, and also, I've been there every step of the way, kind of uh, making sure that um, things were headed in a story-based direction. Um, and Matthew has been there all the steps of the way, just working so hard. And you know, he's very—he's such a creative guy, and he has a lot of great ideas. And so, it's—I think this is a really great. Um, team we've created between the two of us because um, I think at times he has too many ideas and at times I'm I am thinking more of like just just tell a really quick story about what's going on so that's a long way of saying um, there's a lot to be told and we're still trying to find that story in Halix because we have a lot of footage and uh, Matthew uh, has been editing and we've been looking over paper edits and doing the whole thing essentially in case anybody did, I probably should have mentioned this uh, in 1981 uh, a, a band called Halix was created by Disney uh, to play at Disneyland in Tomorrowland. They played for three months and they were based off of Kiss and Star Wars and it was completely copyright free so it was, they were, instead of a Wookiee, it was like a giant Iceman playing bass and a, instead of C-3PO it was a robot and a hover scooter and it was a terrifying and fascinating thing and Matthew has gone and interviewed the people that made it the people that wrote the songs, the people that made the costumes the people that were backup singers, the people that were they, he's interviewed Everybody, the people that were in the band. Um, and the story is just really, really, uh, really, really fascinating. So if I seem like I'm overwhelmed right now, it's because I'm trying to figure out how to explain this monster of a story <laughs> that every day I call Matthew and we're like, what are we going to do? How are we going to figure this out today? Um, so that's a, it's a very well, interesting story and it's very rich in its setting and very rich in its, in its, uh, in its characters. There's some really interesting people in it. All I needed was for you to say, give it money. Just go to the internet and give it money. That's all. But no, it's... Okay, I, sorry. I, I, I thought, uh, uh, yeah, uh, you can go to um, youtube.com slash defunctland and you'll find a link very quickly. 
You know, I do have to say, though, really, you, you have approached so many topics that nobody would think are the kind of videos that need a story, and yet you are always so good at finding the story and bringing everything around a story. Really, it's your storytelling chops are absolutely incredible, and that made it... Um, that's really what's made it such a delight uh, for me to have you as a guest today. Uh, I'm so happy about this, man. This is really sorry. This is really exciting for me. Uh, well, thank, um, well, thank you. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was fun. I, I'm glad I got to talk about the Henson stuff. I don't get, you know, usually when I go on podcasts, it's still about the theme park stuff. So I'm glad to be in. Fr I'm sure I've embarrassed myself in front of all the hardcore top tier Henson fans, but I uh, but I do really love Henson. Um, uh, and I love, 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 love the Muppet Show. And I'm actually, I've talked about it so much today that I'm probably going to go watch it tonight. Because uh, <laughs> I haven't seen it nearly enough. Uh, I've been watching, what have I been watching recently? I've been watching a lot of, uh, I guess, Muppet Babies. And, well, and the Jim Henson Hour. I got it, I downloaded all the episodes, so I just got it on my Plex account. And I'm just like, this is crazy. Sorry, I'm everywhere right now. Anyways, yeah. No, it's, it's fine. Good. Go I'm also glad to be here. <laughs> thank you thank you that's what i'm supposed to say anything else you'd like to plug uh youtube.com slash defunctland you'll find it all it's there it's not like it's going anywhere um we got maybe some more stuff in the future but uh but stick around because we got all sorts of uh fun videos and if you like the henson stuff um there's a whole world uh, and you've never seen the defunct tv defunct defunct land stuff there's a whole crazy, wacky world of theme parks that we're going to explore with Season 3 coming up of Defunct Land, so watch Woo. it, please. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to Kevin Perjurer as much as I did, you can go to YouTube right now and subscribe to Defunct Land. You can go to whatever podcast provider you like and subscribe to the podcast, Defunct Land. And, of course, DefunctLand.com has uh, a book that Kevin Perjurer wrote. It's all about theme parks and stuff as you would expect. It's good fun. Um, I'm so impressed by everything that Kevin Perjurer does. It was great to be able to talk with him. And uh, as for me, if you would like to follow Muppet Hub, by all means, at Muppet Hub on Twitter and Facebook and MuppetHub.com. I think that's all you need to know. So, until next time, I'm J.D. Hansel, and I invented a strip club. <laughs>